Welcome to Small Town Big Business, the podcast about having big success in small town America. And here tonight, we are broadcasting with a live studio audience at the Little Nashville Cafe in beautiful downtown Marion, Illinois. So I'm Jennifer Olson. I'm the Director of Business Development here for the City of Marion. And I'm Deb Barnett. I'm the Executive Director for Southern Illinois Now. So that's a 17-county economic development initiative right here in Southern Illinois. And I'm Russ Williams. I'm Director of Ethos. Ethos is a small business incubator. We're co-working spaces, do training and development right here in downtown Marion, Illinois. In fact, right across the square is the Citadel building where Ethos is located. We want to thank all of our guests for being here again, but we also want to thank our listeners and our viewers and especially our sponsors for the podcast that have been keeping us going for three years now. And we want to thank in particular Arcadia Wealth Group, Black Diamond, Harley-Davidson, and RV. We want to thank Fowler Heating and Cooling. We want to thank Swinford Media Group, the Watermark Auto Group Foundation, Union Street Arts, which is our producer, and especially Luke O'Neill, who's recording us tonight. And if you are a regular podcast listener, you may have already found us somewhere, but we are on all of the major platforms, including Podbean, Spotify, Apple, you name it, we are there. Uh, We are also on YouTube if you want to see the video component of this show. And what's most important, really two things. One, please subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode. Um, If you haven't listened to prior episodes, go back, do yourself a favor and listen to those. And if you want to help us find more audience like yourself, please rate and review us and share your favorite episode. And if you're new to Small Town Big Business, we interview successful business owners and founders about how and why they're successful in small towns like right here in Marion, Illinois and throughout Southern Illinois and across the Midwest. And today I am very, very excited to welcome our guest, a very special guest. Not only are we live at Little Nashville Cafe and we have our live audience, but we have inventor of Dippin' Dots and founder of 40 Below Joe, Kurt Jones. Can you all help me welcome Kurt? So Kurt, yeah, thanks. First of all, thank you for joining us because I know you are a very busy man and you keep the roads hot. We were talking Mm -hmm. about that earlier, traveling back and forth from your home in Tennessee to here in Southern Illinois, where your business is. But let's start by just telling us a little bit about Kurt. Tell us a little bit about your background and how it all got started here in Southern Illinois. Okay. Well, I actually was born in Southern Illinois. I grew up probably about 40 miles south of here. Grew up on a farm, um, went to Century High School and Shawnee College, and then Southern Illinois University. I've got two degrees at, at SIU. I got uh, both are in microbiology. And microbiology, you usually think of medical and you know bacteria that make you sick, but I'm, I was always on the other side. I, I liked um, finding microorganisms that... Um, that were good for you or good for the environment and things like that. So I, I studied things like fermentations and, and various um, other things, but it led me into a life of research and development. And uh, probably about 1986 or so, I moved from Southern Illinois to Lexington, Kentucky, and I went to work for a company called Alltech. 
at the time it was called All Tech Biotechnology Center. And um, they had just gotten into, uh, basically you've all heard of probiotics, it's very common nowadays, but we were, we were making probiotics back in the 80s and putting it into animal feeds. And the reason we were doing that is because in the 70s and before, and in, and in the early 80s, there was a lot of anti antibiotics being used on the farm, you know, to keep their animals healthy. And so this was a natural alternative to keep the animals healthy, you know, good bacteria outnumber bad bacteria in your digestive system. But the reason I'm going there is because I was in charge of growing all these little bacteria organisms in, in these uh, large uh, stainless steel fermenter tanks. And um, I was also in charge of the freezing and the freeze drying process. And the freezing step's very critical because you wanna have a very small ice crystal formed when you freeze it so that when you freeze dry it, the crystals don't puncture and kill the cells. And I'm getting a little bit technical here, but it's important because I started playing around with liquid nitrogen at that time because I wanted to get the quickest freeze possible. And um, it worked and we converted our freezing system to that. And of course, when you make homemade ice cream, which I also like to do, you also wanna make the smallest ice crystals possible when you're freezing something. And so obviously the two kind of uh, collided and uh, that's kind of how I started making little so did of ice cream. You, did you fall into that discovery or did you <clears throat> intentionally put some things together? Well, a little bit of both. I mean, when I was making the, um, when I was freezing the cultures of bacteria, I didn't really care what they looked like. I was making, um, at first, like pouring nitrogen into the cultures and then I was pouring the cultures into the nitrogen. But I found if you poured it in slowly, you would make little raindrops and it would freeze into pellets, which also lets you pour it in and out of containers. It gave it more uh, surface area to freeze dry. And of course, um, uh, the ice cream part just came, I just got to thinking about, you know, like I said, you wanna make a small ice crystal when you, you know, when you have your hand freezer and your ice and your salt, you're, you know, you're, you're basically making large ice crystals and you can taste it. Mm -hmm. So I just thought, well, why not try ice cream that way? So it was kind of a, combination of and the dip two. and dots was born yes what year was that that was 1987 87 mm -hmm. wow. so not sure if i answered all of your questions yeah you yeah. did yeah and you, so you grew up in southern illinois mm -hmm. you mentioned you went to the university so we're salukis uh, yeah. southern illinois university i think we have some siu students I do here think we have some That's students right. here yeah yeah so so you create something Mm -hmm. That's a long way from getting it into the hand of the consumer. So can you kind of tell us how things go from there? Yeah, I mean, in the beginning, it's really just, um, you know, you once you're kind of convinced, you know, that you, you feel like you have something that's kind of neat, you start showing other people, first your family and then your friends. And, and um, so I did that and I would get strange looks at first because at that time, you know, all the ice cream was not, none of it was in beads at that time. So a lot of people thought I was like playing a joke on them. You know, they wouldn't even hardly taste it. But once you get it in people's mouths, you know, they kind of got the feeling of, of what we were doing. Um, I stuck with my job for six months. Um, I even went to my boss who was very entrepreneurial himself and asked him if he thought it was a good idea if he wanted to get involved in any way. And he just kind of said, you know, it's a good idea, but just get back to work. You know, we're busy too. <laughs> so the uh, nights and weekends, you know, I would work on it and play with it. And finally, um, in the middle of the winter, you know, November, I, I finally just told my wife, I said, you know, I, I really want to 
get into this, you know, full time because we had done a little bit of test marketing. We had we had rented a little spot for like ten days and gave out samples and even sold a few cups. And we were getting good reactions and people liked the product and we were coming up with more and more flavors and more and more ideas on how to promote it. And uh, finally, after about six months, we took our our life savings of $10,000 and uh, decided to quit a, 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 you know, a good job and open an ice cream store in the middle of the winter. <laughs> Uh, on the perfect. wrong side of town as well. So, <laughs> Were you still in Lexington, Kentucky at the time? Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. How did it come back here? Well, what happened is during 1988, from March of 1988 through that year, uh, my wife and I just worked at the store, and my daughter, she was five years old at the time, and uh, just every day we would open up and open an ice cream store, and I made the product in the back. And... Um, we started going outside of the store and kind of marketing it in other places. Um, even went down to um, Opryland Theme Park, which was in Nashville, and showed them what we were doing. They had a little bit of interest. But basically, um, my sister, Connie, um, she had been out of the area for a while, and she was wanting to come back into the area. She had just gotten married. And she has an MBA, which was kind of handy in the beginning if, you, if you're starting a business. Um, and so, between her and my mom and my dad, uh, back in Southern Illinois on the farm, they were trying to figure out how they could get involved and how they could help. So we took a garage that my wife and I used to own. It was on a piece of property right next to our farm. And um, they converted that into a small ice cream plant. And we actually got uh, an, a license here in Illinois to manufacture. So we were doing this in my garage. Wow. And so they were going to be kind of the manufacturing arm while we did the store and then also got into wholesaling the product. Seems like a lot of technology for a garage. Yeah. Um, well, a lot of the technology is in the equipment itself. So once we got that kind of figured out, and that was a process in itself. You know, it, it was a, uh, it went from being what could almost be like a um, cylindrical French fry machine type thing with a screen in it where you, you know, you manually pulled it out every batch. Uh, to our experience on the farm, you know, uh, reminded me of watching soybeans being augered out. So we, okay. we started adding some pieces to it and built a uh, more of a continuous machine. Wow. So, but yeah, it's um, just started. I mean, that was our first real manufacturing facility. And then later we moved to Paducah, Kentucky into a small 2,000 square foot building. And then we eventually built a dip and dot plant that's still there today wow. um, a few years later. So I've heard you tell your story many times, and I, I've been privileged to work alongside you over the last few years and get to know you um, at your manufacturing facility right here in Southern Illinois, just down the road in Carbondale. Mm -hmm. um, and I do want to jump into some of those new products, but before we do, I, I want to go back um, to those beginning days at Dippin' Dots as well, because I've heard people ask you, um, you know, Dippin' Dots was this overnight success, or it appears <laughs> as though, right? right. And, and I've heard you tell the story that, that that was not at all the case. So can you talk a little bit about that for people who are maybe looking to start a business or they've, they've stumbled on this, what right. they think is a great idea like you shared? Well, I usually start out by saying, just keep your job, you know, but, uh, <laughs> but no, if, if you've got the bug, I mean, you've got it. And, um, you know, the, the first stages of a bit, and it depends on what type of business you start as well. I mean, but, um, in our case, we're trying to build a, we were trying to build a business that we could, you know, manufacture and wholesale a product, which is a whole different animal than, than, uh, you know, some businesses. But I think, um, it was 
much harder than we thought it would be because, you know, we love the product, our family love the product, our friends love the product, and even people we gave it to love the product, but would they buy it? Mm-hmm. Would they buy it in large enough quantities to, you know, sustain, you know, all your overhead and your, your business? So it was just a big learning curve for the first few years trying to figure out where to go because the real key is um, – I always say starting a business is kind of like a, a basketball game where you've got four quarters and you've got a certain amount of time before you run out of money. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the way you got to play it is like, uh, I've got to make enough product that's got a margin on each unit. I've got to sell enough of that to where I've got enough money to keep everything open. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's that's kind of the way that you have to approach it. And it's very difficult in the beginning when you're trying to um, to do that because even you might have the best product, but if no one knows what it is, and this was before the internet, before <laughs> all like that, that. Yeah. how so, could you ever make it without the internet? Yeah, um, but it was really just a, a getting. Well, what we finally figured out is that it, we weren't going to make it in our ice cream store. Uh, we were fortunate to get into Opryland the next year, but even there, it failed for two years until we were able to come in and take over at Opryland and run it as our business. Because what you have to do is you have to get. In, in our case, we had to get out where there's people walking by. And we were about 25 feet off the beaten path, but we had to get out where we could get people to come over and try it. Mm-hmm. And then once you get people to the counter, you know, you can kind of, you know, talk to them and they eventually will come back and buy something that later that day if it's in the morning or they might buy right then. Yeah. But it was just one by one, you know, in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think I first experienced Dippin' Dots at Opryland. Okay. And how big did you get? Because you were at other amusement parks. That was... Yeah, what happened, we went into Opryland, and it's kind of a funny story how we got there, because like I said, my sister Connie was was working with us, and uh, we knew that we had to get into something like that, because again, we have product that has to be kept at 40 below zero, so everywhere we sell product, we pretty much have to have a 40 below freezer, which can get expensive. Mm-hmm. So we kind of decided we couldn't be just in every little restaurant in town, we, we tried that, but we knew we had to go where we could sell a lot of volume through one freezer. So we started thinking about fairs and festivals and then eventually theme parks. And so the first thing my sister did, we we had rented this little office in Paducah. It was about, oh, probably, you know, 12 feet by 12 feet. We had four desks in there. And um, when I say desk, I'm talking about, you know, chairs with a door laying on it, that kind of thing. <laughs> but I remember she called Disney, you know, why not start at the top? Mm-hmm. And um, they sounded kind of interested, you know, but they started talking about how much they went through in a day, which was like a semi-truck load a day or maybe two or three. Mm-hmm. So we knew that that probably wasn't for us. And she called Opryland, and you, you almost have to hear her tell the story, but everything that they would ask her, she didn't have a good answer for. You know, it's like, uh, well, how long have you been selling your product? Well, we haven't really sold it anywhere yet. Um, you know, just on and on and on. But eventually, uh, they, they wanted to see us in person. And so we went there. So we got into Opryland, we thought we had it made, and that's when we moved back from Lexington because we thought, well, we've got to go back and you know, get on the production side and we're gonna start wholesaling it out. They projected that they would sell 100 gallons a day. My machine would make four gallons an hour. So when I did the math, I thought, well, that's not gonna work out. So we, we went back and concentrated on that side of it. But they only sold about two gallons a day. I mean, it was a very small amount because again, they didn't know what our product was about. Nobody knew what the brand was. The second year, we we came up with the idea with Opryland to put it in a kiosk, which is still working today, but it didn't work the first year because we found out later they, they didn't sell very much the second year. And uh, 
Uh, they even asked if we would come and pick up all of our equipment. So that was kind of the low point. Mm. And um, they said, we like you guys. We like the product. It's just not selling. And I asked for um, a little background. I said, well, um, you know, how much, you know, I started asking them questions. What I found out is they, they had only opened the cart about 25 days out of the whole season. Yeah. And it was only on cloudy and rainy days when they had enough. <laughs> but when they were busy, all their people were being used to sell their normal items. So we picked up all of our equipment. <clears throat> and the third year, <clears throat> which we didn't know there was going to be a third year, but what happened was one of the guys, when we were picking up the equipment, it just so happened that his dad was the uh, general manager of the theme park. And he just kept saying, I just don't think you guys got a fair shake. You know, I just wish we could have done something differently. And, and what happened, they had a new food service supervisor come in that year. And he said, I'm going to get you a meeting with him because he comes from a different side of the park where they, you know, where you go through and play the games. And you, mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of people over there work kind of on commission and things like that. So we basically got a meeting and we went down, we worked out a deal to where we would give the park 25% of our sales, but we would run everything. Mm -hmm. And then we had to come up with $20,000, which we didn't have, to remodel a, uh, a building to get in. And uh, luckily, we found a bank that did, did loan us the money. But the first day that we opened, it was snowing. But we still sold $300 worth of product. And that was more than almost any day we'd sold the year before. The cloudy days. And then, yeah. And so then the next day, it got up to about 50 degrees. It was sunny. It was a Sunday. And we sold $800. So we knew that we were kind of in a good place. And I think that year we ended up selling like $360,000 worth of product. Yeah. But what we found out, and the biggest part of it was what we learned. And um, the food service supervisor was actually really good to work with because he would share everything with us. And the way that parks um, measure how something's working is by what they call per caps. So if you sell $1,000 worth of product and there's 10,000 people in the park, you've done a 10 cent per cap. So every person average spending 10 cents on your product. So we learned that. And then the other thing I learned was um, a term called additional spending. So what that means is that of that $360,000 that we sold, their ice cream sales only went down by 90,000. Mm -hmm. So we created that much additional spending for them. Yeah. So they were very happy with that. Now. That gave us the ammunition to go to other theme parks. Yeah. And so the next year we got into like three or four more theme parks. Yeah. And then the next year, like 11 more. And then, you know, kind of awesome. started growing. Sunny up. days came more often. Yes. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so you mentioned the five-year-old when you started. And she is now an adult that is your yeah. partner in uh, 40 Below Joe and some of the other products, actually, that we have here this evening. So yes. tell us a little bit about uh, what you're up to now with 40 Below Joe. Sure. Yeah, Tracy was five when we when we opened the store. And so she lived all the Dippin' Dot days, but she didn't really live the startup part of the business. I mean, she did, but she didn't really understand everything that was going on. And she liked going to the theme parks that we went to and tried to sell in and all that. Uh, but anyway, so um, later in life, I mean, probably back in 2016 or 17, you know, we started, um, we rented a spot over at the, at the incubator in, at Carbondale at the Dunn Richmond Center. And uh, uh, my daughter, um, well, she's 40 now, just to kind of give you an idea of the time that's passed, but she wanted to be a part of starting a similar business to Dippin' Dots. We sold Dippin' Dots in, in uh, 2012. Stay, I stayed with the company for three years. But um, We'd, already, we'd always had some ideas to do some other products. So we thought 
a lot of products can become beaded products. So we started with coffee. And so we, uh, and the way that got started, I'll come back to Tracy in a minute, but um, we had actually opened four Dippin' Dot stores back in the mid, like around 2007, 2008 timeframe, maybe a little bit before, before that. And we'd always thought we would put coffee in those stores in addition to the ice cream. And as I started talking to baristas and things at other coffee shops, they said, you know, the thing you want to always do is make sure you pull a fresh shot of espresso. So you make your cappuccinos, your lattes. You want to make sure you've, you know, you've just ground the beans and you've run it through your espresso machine and you take that and you mix it. And uh, the reason is, is because it starts to change. You know, coffee kind of, you know, changes when it sets out and it's from the oxygen in the air. But it made me think, well, what would really happen if I took a fresh shot of espresso and then froze it? at 320 below zero into beads, you know, what would happen if you warmed it back up, you know, an hour later or a day later or a month later? And so we did those experiments and found out that it actually locked in that freshness so that you can actually, uh, you know, taste this product even a year later if you keep it at 40 below zero and it's it's got all that initial um, taste and flavor and everything. So the first idea is that we would go into the coffee business and we would basically sell a consumer at home, a bag of coffee beads, or if someone wanted to open a coffee kiosk, they wouldn't have to purchase a very expensive espresso machine. They could just have a steamer, bring it back to life. And you can make anything that Starbucks can make, except you can do it faster because you're not going through all that preparation. So that's how we started the business. And um, so my daughter, Tracy, she was a big, she has been and still is, a, 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 she does all of our branding and marketing and everything. So any of the logos and things that you see, I mean, she doesn't create logos herself, but she basically manages all of that. Um, but probably a year or so into it, we were at SIU, and I think um, there was getting ready to be a, an alumni meeting up in Chicago, or, and I was asked if we would serve our coffee there. And so I got to thinking about, well, how am I gonna heat that much water? You know, I haven't really got that far along. I could get a steamer. But we had just started playing around with um, the creamer portions, you know, for people that liked to add, like if they wanted a salted caramel flavor, you know, we, we started playing with uh, making creamers out of coconut milk and almond milk. We wanted to stay non-dairy. At the time, mainly because I didn't want to like go right into the face of Dippin' Dots. But as it turns out, there's a really big demand for non-dairy um, products. But we got to thinking, well, what if we just mix the beads with the coffee beads and just let people eat it? And um, so that's what we did, and it went over real well. So we just have spent most of our time marketing the coffee that way. Mm-hmm. And it's called 40 Below Joe, by the way. And where do you sell that product? Well, we sell it on the internet. So we've shipped all 48 states. Uh, we don't ship to Alaska and Hawaii, but, um, but we also have um, uh, put it in some coffee shops and grocery stores. And you can, you can actually go on our website and go to um, whatever state you're in and and it'll show some of the sites that we're at but from that we've um we've also gotten into some other products too uh another product that i'd been working on along with the coffee was a product called island rocks which is everything you need to make a margarita you just add the tequila Mm -hmm. and then of course we did a pina colada that you add rum to we do a strawberry daiquiri and a mango margarita so that can come as a mocktail where you can just eat it as a kind of a refreshing non-alcoholic drink or you can add alcohol to it 
We can also add alcohol to it up to 15 proof if you keep it in a 40 below freezer. We haven't quite sold it that way yet because it gets a little more complicated when you have to start dealing with all the alcohol laws and all that. Um, and then from that, we've kind of expanded into other things too. So I can talk about that whenever you want me to. But So I heard formal degree. I heard school of court hard knocks. Try it until it works. Mortgage all the things. What are the other components of success, resources, people power, tools? I think one thing that I always tell people if they're getting ready to start a business is make make sure you really believe in what you're doing and what your idea is because it's easy. And I and I get ideas all the time, but I kind of I kind of do the 48 hour test. I'll kind of write it down somewhere. <laughs> yeah. I'll come back in 48 hours and see if it sounds as exciting as it did. Mm. And That's usually a good it doesn't. Test. I'll have to remember that <laughs> yeah. test. But when you first come up with an idea, it's like, oh, this is the best thing ever, you know, and it's not always. But but I think um, that's the first thing is that you really got to believe in what you're doing, because not only are you going to invest, you know, a lot of time and a lot of your own money, but other people around you are going to do the same thing, whether it's your wife or your daughter or your family or somebody's investing money in you. So you want to don't be scared of that. I mean, just just know that that you really think it can work. I mean, you got to really ask that hard question. And then you got to really be willing to, you know, at that point it's 24-7. You know, there's no 8 to 4 anymore. It's it's like, you know, you're going to be waking up at 1 o'clock in the morning with an idea, putting a note in your phone or whatever it might be. So, Any other lessons for young entrepreneurs that are have that spirit that, or idea? Well, luckily, we do live in the age of the Internet now, so people can get on and do a lot of research. And, and uh, there's, of course, ways to market things that way. Um, um, I, I think, again, I always come back to it's just really a matter of of believing in what you're doing and being willing to work hard and, and not give up because, I mean, maybe there's times when you do need to give up if it's just not going to work, but I'm just saying the uh, you get knocked down a lot as an entrepreneur or someone starting a business. I mean, it, they don't... they. Um, they don't make it easy on you. I mean, it's just not easy to do a, a, a business, you know. Um, there's just a lot of components that have to come together. But you're going to get um, you're going to get offended. You're going to get um, uh, disrespected in, in your own mind. And people don't really do that on purpose all the time. It's just that, I mean, you can literally be, um, you know, I can set samples out on a counter, and if I'm standing there and, you know, most people like what you do, but sometimes you'll get, oh, this just don't taste very good. Or, you know, we're, you, know you just got to be able to kind of grow some thick skin, I think. And, and why Southern Illinois? We're such a rural community. Why keep the business or start the new businesses here? Well, I think, um, I think there's a lot of reasons, really. I mean, um, at first we thought we were going to have our business in Lexington. We were planned on staying there. We liked where we lived and everything. And, I mean, did it make sense to move to back to grand chain of 250 people or Lexington that had, you know, probably close to a million people. But on the other hand, you know, when we moved back here, we had a lot of support, you know, from people that we knew and family and, and for the type of business that we grew. Um, I mean, I mean, Southern Illinois is a really good place because of, you know, if you're in the distribution business, you're in a, you're in a, you're in a good place, you know, as far as getting product out other places. But, I mean, I think you can start a business anywhere, but I think for us it just, um, uh, it was kind of like we just knew that we had more infrastructure here um, that, that we could uh, call on people that we knew and people that, and also people, you know, needed jobs too. Mm -hmm. um, 
And I'm probably different than a lot of people. I mean, I know a lot of people would probably interview like 30 people before they hired someone, but we always just hired people as they became available. And a lot of times it was like, um, you know, good people that might've lost a job or, or whatever. And uh, it wasn't so much about what your qualifications were for, for what we do, but we felt like we could always, if you, if you had the right attitude and, and you really wanted to work, then we could probably find something for Does you. Does that to speak do. towards your why, why you do what you do? Or is it other, something other? Um, I mean, it's part of that. I mean, I, um, um, I mean, I will, I will say that one of the, um, I mean, it's, it's great that Dippin' Dots became a national brand and, and, and you can even buy it in other countries. But I think for me, um, one of the proudest things is that, you know, there's still 250 people that work for Dippin' Dots. And I know a lot of them came out of, you know, Pulaski, Alexander, Massac counties, Johnson County. And, um, and I knew that it was, um, it, you know, there's, you know, especially back then, there wasn't just a, there was there was other jobs, but this this was just some more you know that people could could do. Well done, that's awesome. I want to go back a minute to the resources that Jennifer asked about, and I think one of the great resources that we have here in Southern Illinois are our incubators. So mm -hmm. Russ is at Ethos over at the Citadel, right across from where we're recording today, and you have co-working space, all kinds of business resources, and then just right down the road at SIU Carbondale. There is a business incubator, which is where we met and where you started, Beta Distribution, 40 Below Joe. And uh, one of the stories I want to tell, because I know we have some SIU students in the audience, is one of my favorite stories is a student that came to you, I think just uh, an accounting major. She was just going to do some bookkeeping for you. And over the course of a couple of years, she ended up learning every single aspect of your business in and out from shipping, I think. Um, she helped with one of the first international uh, shipping and how all of that worked out. And it, it really is such a great um, just learning experience for students to come in and really learn the ins and outs of a business. But can you speak a little bit to um, how the incubator has kind of helped you oh, get yeah. the, the business launched and then continue with that research and development? Yeah, I mean, right after I left Dippin' Dots and, and um I knew I had these ideas for the coffee and the Island Rocks especially. And I was just literally gonna rent like a 250 square foot room to start just having a place to throw down and you know start working on some things. And then I think the first day I came in to rent it, the, uh, a 900 square foot room came available to had some plumbing and stuff. And I thought, well, I'm gonna need that too. And Because that, if I could interject, that sure. incubator there has co-working space, but it also has manufacturing, light manufacturing mm -hmm. space and office space and all those kinds of things. But what's really nice about it too, not only do you get all the support of the people that work there, uh, uh, in, including you at the time, you know, but you also have the, um, uh, just a lot of things that, that you have to have when you start a business. I mean, like a, a place that when you leave at night that, you know, it's got security, it's, you know, it's got, a, you know, it's electricity to try different things. And you, I mean, so there's just a lot of pieces that you need that lets you focus on what you do. And then when it's time to look for financing or, or, you know, other things, you know, you can always just go down the hall and talk to someone and say, hey, do you know, you know, or if you need to hire someone, you know, uh, or if you want to work with some students, like, you know, do you know anybody over in the, such and such department. So, I mean, to me, it really works out nice. Um, and especially at SIU, I mean, SIU, um, I always think of it as kind of a, you can think of it in a lot of different ways, but 
the way I grew up and went to school there is we had a lot of focus on research and developmental type things. And I think there's an entrepreneurial spirit there mm -hmm. that you don't have probably at every university. And I think that was one of my favorite parts because every time, I wouldn't say every day, but a lot of times you or one of your employees would come down the hall and say, we've been working on this new product today and this, and so we would get to be the taste testers. Yes. So that, that was always exciting. And, right. and knowing you, there was always an idea brewing, as you, as you mentioned, always a new idea and a new, new product. Yeah, and I like, I like being at the university for that as well. Not that we go and talk to a professor every day or anything like that, but if you do have an idea, you do have that resource that, that mm -hmm. you can go um, sometimes just to see if you do you think this is a good idea. And I'm happy to, to try any products here, Marion, by the way. <laughs> yeah, we've got plenty. We have <laughs> so. plenty. So what does the future hold? Well, speaking of products, I mean, um, so we got 40 Below Joe, which is coffee-based, made with real coffee and, and non-dairy creamers. We've got the Island Rocks, which are the um, mocktails, or you can call them blend, um, you know, you can blend them with your own alcohol. But then we got into something that was kind of interesting. Um, when I was a student at SIU, I did various things, but one project I got involved in one time was making... Um, Basically, we were taking canning waste from Del Monte. We had a little $500 grant. I always remember this. And uh, my project was to turn this canning waste into something. And so growing up on a pig farm, I, I thought, well, I'd always like to work with anaerobic digesters, you know, and I wanted to see if I could make methane gas out of it. And so I played with that for a while, but it also linked me up with a, I don't even know if they're still there. They're probably not, but there was a little, um, in the chemistry department, there was a, organization called Pollution Control, and they were doing various projects around campus, but one project they were working on was Prairie Farms was making cottage cheese, which they still do, and sour cream, but one of their byproducts of that is the milk water that's left over, which is referred to as whey, and back then, I think they were trying to figure out how much of it they could actually put down into the drains and how much the... Uh, the water plants could sustain of that because it has a lot of organic matter in it. And I was playing around with that a little bit. But anyway, you fast forward many decades and I got to thinking about, I wonder if they're still basically throwing this away. And so I knew the CEO of Prairie Farms because we used to buy a lot of ice cream mix from them. And he said, oh yeah, he said, we're still getting rid of it. And uh, we give it to farmers and things like that. So I went and got some of it and we started playing with it. And we make a product now called the Fruity Way. And it's, I don't know if that's a good name for it, but it's basically what it is. It's basically we add fruit to this cottage cheese way. It sounds horrible, but it's really not. I mean, it's, it's really good. good. It's <laughs> and so good. Uh, it's better than adding fruit to like water and freezing it. It's, uh -huh. the, but the way has dissolved minerals and vitamins and protein. So it gives it a little bit more of a nutritional uh, kick. And then we have another product called Way to Go, which is, um, Kind of the same thing, but it's got no sugar added, but it also has whey protein powder added to it. So it, we can actually, in a little serving like you see back there, we can get up to about eight grams of protein. So it's it's a way to, uh, the market we think that we're gonna go get into will be like gyms and weightlifting places, maybe prisons where there's a lot of weightlifting going on, but also eventually nursing homes and hospitals where you're looking for a protein snack. Um, but. The fruity way, by the way, is um, we're, we're getting ready to go into schools because um, there's a new program. 
well, it's called the Smart Snack Program, and, and a lot of the things that you used to be able to buy in schools, you can't really buy there anymore because they, they want healthier products. And so our product happens to meet a lot of those standards. So we're, we're doing a lot of school trade shows now, and we're getting ready to um, uh, take product in where it can be sold in schools. But the last product that we came out with, the fifth brand, if you will, is called um, 40 Below Desserts. And basically what we've done is I've been away from Dippin' Dots long enough to where I'm kind of like basically coming back in with a lot of products we developed at Dippin' Dots. So if you had cookies and cream or banana split or cotton candy, those types of things, we're starting to make those products now, but we're making them non-dairy at this point. So everything's made out of coconut milk, almond milk, and eventually we'll make some out of oat milk. But those are kind of the um, directions we're kind of going into now. Mm -hmm. Oh, I will say one more thing, and we've been under NDAs on this, but we we are we are still under some with with. Um, but we're getting we're we're also talking to a lot of um, at least three different companies that's got some really neat projects coming up. And the one I think I can talk about is um, there's a group out of Florida that has gotten the license from Mattel to do um, Barbie products, and uh, we're going to basically do a beaded Barbie package. And they're going to sell them in a lot of um, mostly vending machines, I think, starting now. So all that's kind of in the works now. But we've got some really neat designs. And I don't know if I've showed you those yet or not, but they're kind of cool. Now, I think I heard about it just a little bit of a while yeah. back, but I wasn't sure if you were able to share. But, yeah. I mean, really, the possibilities are endless. So you're going to need a larger notepad next yeah. year. <laughs> next year, but and, yeah, and more people sure. to try out products, that's by the way. Right. That's right. So that's not a completely, completely done deal, but sure. it's far enough along where we've shared designs back and forth and yeah. with the Mattel and different things. So it, we feel pretty good that it could happen in 2024 but if it doesn't you know there'll be something else so, Excellent. so i know you're uh inspiring to a lot of people and encouraging to entrepreneurs do you have anybody that inspires you or cheerleads you or any favorite authors or podcasts that help you out well i tell you i um i was actually asked to be on a podcast one time by um a guy named guy Roz. he does a podcast called how i built this and I was really impressed with him. I, I did the um, interview back in, in 2019, and it was over at, at SIU, actually. Mm -hmm. And he was in California. But um, he interviewed me for about three and a half hours. Wow. And I thought, oh, man, I don't know what this is going to turn out like. This could be really bad. It could be really good. It could be, I just didn't know. But before he aired it, he sent me a copy of it. And I, I thought he did a really good job because I have some ups and downs in my story. And I think he handled those real well and asked the right questions and made it easy for me to talk about it. But then he um, invited me um, later to come out to one of his, um, he does a lot of, and by the way, he's, in, he's, he's interviewed some major people. I mean, founders of uh, Starbucks, Southwest Airlines, you know, all these different ones. But he invited me to come out to a show that he put on in California, and I was just as a guest, but uh, I got to know him a little bit, and it was really... Uh, He's really a neat guy, and, and I think he's got a really neat, you know, um, and he, he will only interview founders of companies, mm -hmm. cool. so that, that made it kind of interesting. But, um, I mean, I have a lot of people that have inspired me over the years. I mean, um, but a lot of times it's not like the, the most successful business in the world. It's just people that are hardworking, honest, you know, just... Um, watching their work ethics and what they what they did even in a local community like um i grew up around a, a little place called hoots 
drive-in, which was a good friend of our, our family were good friends with them, but they had a little restaurant for 42 years out in the middle of nowhere, but it was like the place that everybody hung out after high school basketball games. And, but just little things like that, because I really remember going and talking to Hoot and Linda Parker about when I was wanting to start Dippin' Dots, like, you know, they were teaching me like, you know, what your cost of goods should be. And, you know, just little things like that. Just, um, you know, so. Mentorship makes all the difference. It does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Kurt, before we wrap up this interview, we've got a live audience, as mm-hmm. we said here at the Little Nashville Cafe in Marion, Illinois. And this is your chance. Our guests are in the room to ask a question. Would you take a question from our sure, yeah. audience or two? <clears throat> does anybody have a question that they'd like to ask Kurt? Fair game? Anything fair game? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Any questions for any of us? Ah, there you go. What's the worst flavor you ever tried? Okay, the worst flavor. I think it was, um, we were trying to do some, like, Mexican flavors. I think horchata maybe might have been. Uh, I don't uh, think it tasted like what it should have or something, but that was that was one. And then there was probably another one that I um, I was trying to think there was another one that I didn't really like, but uh, most of them, t- it's hard to make sugar and fat taste bad. Not <laughs> <laughs> another question? We've got students who they should be asking questions, right? <laughs> now they're shaking their head. They don't get extra credit for that. That's right. <laughs> well, Kurt, very interesting. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'll give another hand to Kurt Jordan. We'll pause and ask, do you guys have any more questions or do you have anything that you wanted to cover? Yeah, anything we forgot. Did we miss anything that Luke? we forgot to ask? No, I. Yes, we have samples and we're going to try those. Yeah, they're going to melt if you guys don't try yeah. them. And, and I think we have some of everything. So uh, we may not have the way to go, which is the high protein version, but we've got everything else. We've got okay. Excellent. the dip and dot desserts. I mean, not dip and dot, 40 below desserts. Yeah. Well, we're going to do our last segment here to wrap up, and then we'll take a break, and you guys can enjoy the treats here. So we want to thank everyone for being part of the Small Town Big Business Podcast community by listening and watching our podcast, um, especially today to our live audience. Um, Thank you to our sponsors, Arcadia Wealth Group, Black Diamond Harley-Davidson and RV, Fowler Heating and Cooling, the Swinford Media Group, Watermark Auto Group Foundation, and, of course, Union Street Arts. Thank you very much to Luke O'Neill, who is our producer, makes us sound and look really good on our podcast. If you want to know more about Ethos, I'm Russ Williams. I'm director of Ethos. We're a small business incubator, co-working spaces, and training and development here in downtown Marion, Illinois. As I said, right across the street at the Citadel building. But you can contact me at russell at watermarkethos.org. And I'm Deb Barnett, again, Executive Director for Southern Illinois Now. You can find us on all the social media platforms, but also at southerninillinoisnow.org. And I'm Jennifer Olson, Director of Business Development for the City of Marion. You can find me at City Hall, or you can get my contact information off LinkedIn. And just a reminder, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like what we're doing, please share your favorite episode with somebody who will enjoy it. Appreciate you all. Thank you for joining us. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you, Kurt.